This is Intersection, I'm Matthew Petty. Central Florida's tourism economy is still reeling from the impacts of the pandemic, but Visit Orlando's new CEO is optimistic about the future. Cassandra Mate stepped into the role in February, and while visitor numbers and tourism development taxes have taken a big hit over the last 12 months, she says Central Florida is well positioned for recovery. Cassandra, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. I'm glad to be here. So you're heading up the city's tourism promotion agency at a pretty tough time, I think it's fair to say, to be promoting tourism. Um, What is your strategy? Well, it is a very interesting time because there's no doubt that the industry has been, been impacted in Orlando. It's been impacted all around the state and really all around the world. Um, but we are seeing some amazing signs that we're on the beginning road to recovery. And so what is my strategy? It's all about recovery, recovery, recovery. Mm-hmm. Let me just read a stat back to you between March 2020 and January 2021 hotels in Orlando uh, in the Orlando area suffered more than three billion dollars in lost revenue Uh, that's compared with the same time in the previous year it's a pretty big decrease Um, do you kind of look at some of those figures and 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 shudder a little bit when you see the 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 decline the dip in numbers there no doubt. I mean, it was absolutely devastating um, for the industry around the Orange County community. And really what makes me you know, think about those numbers is the people that have lost their jobs, you know, which are our friends, our neighbors, our colleagues. So, you know, that's one of the biggest, I think, things that was the hardest to take during this time frame. And as you know, the Orange County has really been on the front foot in trying to help some of these folks out in the short term, at least, with things like you know rental assistance and other forms of economic relief. Um, do you find yourself working a little more closely with Orange County government and other sort of city governments than you might normally be uh, in a non kind of recession, non pandemic time? Yeah, I actually think destination organizations around the country uh, will definitely be more closely uh, working with their local municipalities. And you're exactly right, because as I mentioned, my number one priority is all about recovery for our, for our industry and making sure we get visitors back to Orlando. But it takes a, a wide view of that because number one, that is making travelers feel stronger and have a stronger sentiment to travel is the fact of health and safety. So we've got to work with uh, not only Orange County, the city of Orlando, you know, when you look at uh, the the health providers uh, to really make sure that we have the best plans possible. Thinking about what's happening right now, spring break is here, theme parks have booked out. Uh, What does that at least tell you about demand for tourism and what to look out for going forward? I think all the tourism economics, they have really been right as they were looking at the future that we knew leisure travel would be the first to recover. And we're starting to see that, right? We're starting to see more people on flights. Uh, we're starting to see the the theme parks at their full capacity, which right now is right around 35%. But those are all strong signs. I will tell you, we were hopeful in the Orlando area that it would be similar to what we saw back in December, hitting you know, 50% of hotel occupancy. And we actually think that we're going to 
beat or meet that for spring break. So I know that, you know, all of us that live here certainly can see that there are more cars, cars on the road and, um, you know, people are, more people are at our restaurants. So those, again, are great signs that it's going to be, that it has been a strong spring break. Thinking about that 35% cap on theme park attendance, would you hope to see that lift in the near future, like in the next month or two? So another um, aspect of why I think that we're on the beginnings of the road for recovery is because of the vaccination. And I think as more and more, and you see it not only in Orange County, but you see it statewide. Um, and now you're starting to see other states, whether it's allowing more people uh, to be eligible for the vac- vaccine. I think that's a great sign. So with that comes, I think that we can start looking at those occupancy levels and seeing if we can relax those. There's certainly a balance between health and safety and, of course, the economics, but safety is number one. Um, And I think as we do start seeing the more general population be vaccinated that would be interested in travel, uh, you know, we obviously would hope to see those numbers uh, as far as relax a little bit on occupancy. So what what's the process there? I mean, are you talking to, you know, the, the health officers for the county departments of health? Like, how does that process work? Yeah, so we're working, you know, whether it's with the, the county themselves and the leadership, as well as obviously the state leadership and seeing what they're doing. We're looking at trends all over the country because we know right now, even in the leisure, it's going to be the domestic national traveler that comes back. Uh, and we have a long longer term strategy on the international traveler. So, you know, looking at talking to multiple entities to seeing have, have them weigh in. And of course, you know, all the theme parks have their own guidelines on when they will make the decision that they can allow uh, more people into their parks. I know this is a little bit outside of our area in central Florida, but I wonder what goes through your mind when you see what hap- what's happening in South Florida with uh, spring break crowds there and kind of you know, going beyond that curfew and some pretty big uh, parties without, you know, not, not too much regard for social distancing. Do you, do you have sort of mixed feelings thinking about, A, there's travelers coming back, but B, what are they doing and are they doing it sensibly? Yeah, you know, one of the things that I have said since day one of all of this, it's it's about a shared responsibility, right? The municipality can have their guidelines, the venues uh, can have their guidelines and adhering to, you know, their new cleaning and health uh, safety protocols. But at the end of the day, it's shared responsibility. And so travelers, those that even live here and want to go venture out to our restaurants, we have to recognize that there's a shared responsibility and we're all responsible from getting us through that. I mean, it it is definitely um, a a very difficult balance because I think what you've seen is that there's certainly pent up demand of people wanting to get out and about, but we definitely have to do so responsibly. Mm -hmm. I want to come back to that idea of vaccination that you brought up a moment ago. And obviously everybody's sort of watching that pretty closely and you see the, uh, you know, when there's availability, those appointments book up pretty quickly. But how crucial do you think it is for um, 
hospitality workers do you think they should be prioritized when you look at the the list of people getting vaccinated absolutely um you've got to remember hotels for the most part there were some hotels that had to close but for the most part they've been open and there's even been hotels and communities that have been housing first responders um you know healthcare workers and so we actually did write a, a letter to the governor asking for hospitality workers to be considered Um, But obviously, I think one approach that the state and Orange County leadership is taking by is by age, and they're already starting to lower the age limits. So, you know, that gives us great hope. If you're just joining me, my guest is Cassandra Mate. She's the CEO of Visit Orlando, uh, talking or thinking a little bit about tourism development tax revenue. And that's another stat that people have been watching fairly closely in the central Florida area over the last 12 months. Um, and if you look at what happened in January, I think the the, uh, the numbers there, the revenue didn't increase for the first time since the uh, pandemic hit uh, on, on previous months. Uh, uh, does that worry you a little bit, seeing that little slide in the numbers there? No, because we're, we're also, we're, we're watching those on a weekly basis, obviously a monthly and a quarterly basis. But actually the the TDT, we're, we are forecasting we're going to be ahead of the pace of what we had uh, forecasted for the entire year. And I think, again, when you look at a snapshot of the spring break season, so through March 7th through the 13th, we reached a 54.3% occupancy, which was the highest rate since the pandemic. So I do think we're seeing gradual growth. So we're going to have to look at it from an annual basis versus just a, you know, individual months, uh, because I do think there's going to be a stair-stepped approach um, as we see those numbers increase. And I think, you know, one of the things, you know, we, we feel like based on the research and all the information that we're getting, it was time for Visit Orlando to do our full-blown campaign inviting people to come back to Orlando, which was called, uh, which is called The Wonder Remains. Are you targeting domestic travelers there or is it a, a mix of domestic and international? Like, who are you going for? So for the first time um, since uh, we started talking to Floridians, January, when we launched the Wonder Remains, uh, was the first time that we went and really proactively are inviting people um, outside of the state. So it is a, a, a laser focus on based on research that we're seeing um, that that it is not only that we're doing in-state with Flor- Florida, but out of state. So some new states for us are Texas are showing strong, Texans are showing strong interest uh, in Orlando, in the central Florida region. Um, so we're looking at Georgia. Georgia, Texas, you know, some of the Southeast corridor, uh, but the focus is going to be domestic. What about California? Because, uh, you know, if you just compare, say, theme parks, for example, their restrictions are a bit tougher than Florida. So does that give you a bit of a leg up when you think about um, the opportunities people have to do the things they want to do when they when they visit a place which has theme parks as its main attraction? So where we've seen California and more of the West Coast 
build compression in Orlando what is through the meetings and conventions market uh, because their their facilities in certain cities have not been reopened and so there's been some event planners that have still wanted to hold their program and so they've re relocated from the west coast uh, to uh, central Florida which you know that's obviously giving us short-term business and we're great for that as far as being uh, very active uh, as far as marketing, you would see more of our our, our uh, initiatives in the digital uh, when you talk about California. Mm -hmm. I wonder, you know, just sort of thinking about your, your long-term goals for Visit Orlando, did you have like a laundry list of things you wanted to get done? And have you had to sort of put that on hold for a bit until we reach more of a state of, I don't know, normalization, if you want to call it that, with this pandemic? Yes, I, I don't think we're unusual in that manner. But, you know, I began February 1st, and obviously, number one priority again is all about recovery because it's critical that we get people back to the workplace. Um, you know, again, these are our partners, our friends, our neighbors. Uh, but the fact that Orlando is the number one meetings destination in the U.S., we've got to make sure we get back up to those levels because it's such important aspect of this community and the economic impact that we have on this community. So it, when you think of long-term, of course, because long-term is going to be really re-engaging uh, the international market and really seeking and being that number one visited destination, not only in the U.S., but globally. I wonder too, I mean, this is a question that I've asked other county and city leaders one of the big questions that's been floating around in the aftermath of the pandemic and the, the sort of economic downturn is, you know, should Orlando or should Central Florida's economy be reframed a bit? Like, is it, are we too much at risk to something like this because we are so focused on tourism and hospitality? I wonder what you think of that idea as somebody whose your job is completely tied up in getting people to visit Orlando. Yeah, you know, that is a very good topic. Now, when I think of what ultimately propelled Orlando um, to what it is today, and, and what I think of it today is it's a globally attractive destination for other types of economic development, but the foundational industry, it was travel and tourism. And so we just can't forget that. And I think that there's a, a lot of opportunity in growth. And I just think that we are part of the full economic development cycle uh, when you think, because the more visitors here, um, you've got to remember, and residents need to remember, 50% of the taxes, sales taxes collected that go for our streets, our safety, come from visitors. So I think it's very important. But you also, someone like me, yes, I am 100% in the industry, but I believe in diversity of industries to make up our destination. Actually, our industry will benefit from that. So I think that there there could be best of both worlds, but I just, you know, the foundational aspect of the travel and hospitality industry has just been so important. So we just can't forget that. And we need to make sure that we get that in our industry back to levels pre-pandemic and even grow, growing from those numbers. Do you think that business travel could play a bigger role in that down the track? I mean, it sort of seems as though that it might be heading a little bit in that direction anyway. 
Yeah, I think when you do have diversity of industries, that's something that would be a newer opportunity uh, for the Orlando region is that traditional business travel. However, we know economists are stating that you know we're going to see leisure travel come back um, first, then we will see business travel, but that could be a little bit later down the road, and then um, we'll see international travel coming back after both of those. Mm-hmm. I wanted to just ask another question about TDT revenue too, because Visit Orlando's funding is tied to that. Does that make it a little bit tricky to operate, particularly at a time like this when those numbers are down quite significantly? Yeah, I think all of us are having to learn to do more with less. I mean, at the end of the day, uh, when you look at last year, our budget was uh, declined 53% as compared to 2019 levels, and we're still down 35% in our funding mechanism. Um, And the reality is, is uh, the race for tourism dollars, the competition is even fiercer at this point, right? Um, More so than ever before. So, you know, we are having to learn to do more with less. It's just a very unique time. Um, I do think that during when you have something this monumental happen, there's also key learnings. Um, And I do think collaboration is going to be part of our road to success. Um, And I also, you know, I think that there's partnerships that can be made out there uh, to get the message out about Orlando, as well as the entire state. Um, But looking forward to working with the community and, and together, I think we can make an impact. So you haven't sort of had a a thought over the last few weeks or so since you've you know, gotten your, your feet wet. Uh Oh, what have I gotten into here? You know, cause you know, the one thing I know about Orlando is the world is watching us. We are that important, not only to our local economy, to our statewide economy, but the entire travel industry nationally and globally are watching us right now because we have been welcoming back visitors. We have held some meetings and events. And so I would argue to say that we're going to be positioned very well because we're probably a good year ahead of many of our competitors. So I think that this is a great opportunity and to be part of a legacy, to be able to bring back this community and this economy is very exciting. Cassandra Mate, CEO of Visit Orlando, thank you so much for your time. Absolutely. Up next, a closer look at what the American Rescue Plan means for women in the workforce. Reporter Chabali Karazana discusses the recession's impact on women, and she shares the story about the personal tragedy that changed her perspective on the COVID-19 pandemic. We're back in a minute. This is Intersection. I'm Matthew Petty. Last August, we talked to Chibali Karazana, who writes about the economy for the independent news organization The 19th, about her reporting on America's first female recession. We invited her back to talk about the outlook now, including some of the efforts to address the issues which are impacting women in the workforce due to the COVID-19 recession. Karazana also talks about the essay she wrote about her grandfather, who passed away from COVID-19 earlier this year. Chibali, welcome back to Intersection. Thank you so much for having me. So last we spoke, you had a pretty grim assessment of the impact of the COVID-19 recession on women in the workforce, including some data suggesting it's going to take a very long time for women impacted by the recession to make up ground that was lost in 2020. Um, Six months or so on, has much changed since then? Not a lot has 
changed, you know, essentially since the summer, the growth in the economy has stalled out a little bit in terms of how many jobs we're regaining month to month. And for women, especially the unemployment rates continue to be fairly high, particularly for women of color. If you were to look at just the overall number, you'd say, hey, you know, things are doing a little bit better, right? Uh, The unemployment rate for men and women has sort of evened out, but that's not the case for women of color, right? So, you know, for example, last month, the most recent numbers we have from February um, of Black women were still at an 8.9% unemployment rate and Latinas were around 8.5. And then if you look at white women, they're at 5.2. So there's a pretty big chasm there between what's happening for white women versus what's happening for women of color. And so the recovery, I think the story of this entire year has been that it's it's been fairly unequal and uneven. And so you've seen across the board, people of color just are not rebounding at the same rates. And so we're still experiencing um, a lot of that loss. I mean, women are still out some 2.5 million jobs. Uh, from the start of the pandemic, whereas men have lost, um, are still out about 1.8 million. So there's there's still a, a pretty big difference there. Taking a closer look at what's in that $1.9 trillion recovery package, the American Rescue Plan, you wrote recently, Chabelli, about how it may help boost some of the issues that affect women in particular, and one of them is childcare. How does this relief package address the issue of childcare? I think what's really interesting about the relief package is that of of all of the prongs in there, and if you follow the way that women are affected in this economy, you quickly realize that a lot of the planks of 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 the plan would disproportionately, overwhelmingly help women and women of color. So specifically the childcare piece, like you mentioned, there's some $40 billion in emergency funds to stabilize the childcare industry. That is an enormous investment. I don't think we've seen anything like that for decades. And so, that is going to be a really important one because outside of just the jobs that were lost this year, the other part of what made this recession unique was the childcare piece. A lot of folks lost that safety net. And so, you know, that industry has lost one in six jobs still. And so being able to help those centers reopen, help them pay rent, help them pay their workers who are, again, predominantly women of color, that is going to help um, a lot of women who have either lost their jobs or have uh, left their jobs because they don't have a child care aspect or component. Um, the other thing for child care that is really important from the um, rescue plan is the change in the child tax credit. Uh, the child tax credit up until now has not been available for the lowest income families in this country. It pays $2,000 a year per child, and the change is going to increase that amount quite significantly to $3,000 if you have a child between the ages of 6 and 17, or $3,600 for children under the age of 6, and it's going to be available for the lowest income families. So what that means is If you're a family that doesn't have a tax liability or paying zero dollars in taxes before, you couldn't get the full credit. Now you will. And it'll also be available periodically, uh, maybe monthly. IRS is still trying to figure that component out. So families will be able to access these dollars quite quickly. And I was just talking to a mom the other day who left the workforce and said, this expansion of the child tax credit is such a huge help for my family because you know, we are now down to one income. And so what this means is if I want to get back into the workforce and work part time, I can now rely on these dollars to maybe pay for childcare while I wait for my first paycheck to come in. You know, she doesn't have the money right now to bridge even a two week wait 
for a first paycheck. With the child tax credit, those, those dollars that she's gonna get, she's gonna be able to have that. And so it is, um, you know, the expansion is, is I think the biggest component of the entire bill because that is something advocates have been pushing for for, for some, you know, two decades at this point. And um, it's expected to cut child poverty in half. I mean, it's really, really a significant piece. Yeah, one of the people you spoke to in your reporting was quoted as saying this is so historic, it's kind of on par with the 1935 Social Security Act. I mean, that really puts it in context, right? Yeah, that was Representative Rosa DeLauro, who's been fighting for this since 2003. And at a time, you know, when she first started pushing for this, no one was talking about this. This isn't something that was getting a lot of traction whatsoever. And she, you know, compares it to that because it's in a way, it's you know, social security for children, um, it, and just the, in the way that social security is able to lift up a lot of seniors out of poverty. This is um, an investment that is being made in children from the time um, that they're very small, and you know, it gives families, you know, parents, if you give them this money, you tell them it's for their kids, they're going to spend it on their kids, right? And so, um, particularly in a pandemic where those funds could really make the difference for a family that is, could be followed by this wave of poverty from this year. Um, that has a lot of um, effects on a child's development. And so to be able to have some aid there, you know, there's a lot of folks that are hoping this is going to be something that's really transformational, really, for a lot of families. Now, you also wrote last year about the woman who could be leading the recovery effort. And we now have Janet Yellen, the Treasury Secretary, um, there was another nominee for the Office of Management and Budget, Nira Tandon, who didn't make it through the nomination process. But when you look at the list of people in Biden's cabinet, has this administration made some strides when it comes to representation of women in key leadership positions? Yeah, you know, I think uh, it's 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 pretty significant, the amount of women that are in, in key spots. You know, obviously, Janet Yellen, uh, the Treasury Secretary, is a significant role. We've never had a woman in that position. And she's going to be incredibly influential um, in sort of laying out what our economic plan and recovery plan is going to be for the next few years. Um, Cecilia Rouse, the head of the uh, Council of Economic Advisors, uh, Gina Raimondo, uh, who's the Commerce Secretary. I mean, there's a lot of women, particularly in, in economic positions, that uh, are going to be really significant for the recovery. And what's interesting is we're hearing a very unified message from all of them that they want to see gender equity, gender data considered when we're making these plans. We can't, you know, just look at averages and say, you know, this is what we want to shoot for or this is the goal. You have to really disaggregate that data a little bit and really look at um, what the impact is on people of color and particularly women of color, because that tells you, you know, a, a bit of more nuanced story of what's really happening with these groups. If you just look at the average, you might be sort of lulled into thinking, oh, things are doing pretty good. But, you know, as we mentioned with the unemployment figures, that's not that's not true for everyone. Mm-hmm. I wonder if we could talk a little bit about the impact of the coronavirus pandemic itself. Now, you and your colleagues reported on the rollout of vaccinations. You looked at disparity in vaccinations along racial lines. Um, what did you find there in your reporting? So equity has really been at the center of, um, as, in terms of the goal with this vaccination rollout. It's just, so, so far, it's been a question of um, whether we're achieving those those metrics. And I, I don't think we are quite yet. You know, a lot of these FEMA sites were set up near minority communities with the hope that accessibility would help um, you know, people of color be able to go and get vaccinated. Um, and we have seen some success with that, right? So I was in the site here in Orlando recently and saw a lot of people of color there who were saying, you know, if this wasn't here, I wouldn't have come, right? Because 
I don't have a ride to get here. The buses are infrequent. They're not reliable. Um, I don't have to make an appointment. And that helps me, you know, just be able to come at the time that is most convenient for me. Um, if this was across town, you know, if I had to go to the convention center, that's not something I would do, right? I wouldn't go all the way over there. So that's part of it. Um, that has helped a little bit in terms of accessibility. We're just still not seeing the numbers, you know, are not quite there um, in terms of the percentage of uh, Black people and, and Latinx people who are getting vaccinated. It's still, you know, I think less than half of the percentage for white people. And so there is uh, still a lot of work to be done, I think in also getting folks to trust the vaccine. There are a lot of good reasons why people of color do not trust vaccinations. There's a long history of racism in this country, particularly around that subject in public health and um, getting people to really trust, have trusted mes messengers out in the community that um, are available to just answer questions and tell people, you know, this is okay, come and get it. Um, and, you know, having people that are are able to bridge that gap, I think is something that we're still working on. And um, the American Rescue Plan has some funding for mobile vaccination units that are to go into communities and, and access communities that otherwise maybe would be more um, reluctant to go and get the vaccine themselves or would wait longer. So I think that's still a work in progress. And that's a really, really important one because we know who are the folks that have um, been really suffering from the 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 virus um, in a sort of really disproportional way, and we know we have to reach them. It's just a question of, I think, building a lot of confidence and also building the program around in a way that um, has their needs in mind. Mm -hmm. Finally, Chiwelli, you wrote a very moving piece about your grandfather who passed away from COVID in January, and uh, I'm so sorry for your loss there. It's beautifully written, but it's also tough to read. Towards the end of the article you write, and I'm just going to read this back, uh, we kept asking ourselves how we as a nation had found a way to go to restaurants, but not a way to visit our sick safely. We've all come to understand isolation better than ever this year. We understand why it protects us, we understand why it is necessary, and yet we don't always remember that those same things have condemned our sick to die alone. What did you want, or what do you hope people can take away from reading this piece? Yeah, you know, I think there I was talking about just some of the challenges that we face as a family enduring having a family member in the hospital for three weeks and having very little access and communication with that person. And I think a lot of families um, who have been through this can relate to that part in particular because, you know, it's very difficult to be just to find yourself alone with in an overwhelmed hospital where the nurses are not available to come and see you. Uh, to just care for you and your family isn't either. And so that I think was something that was particularly hard for us because we did see the effect that that had on my grandfather when he was alone um, in those final days of his life. And it always seemed very ironic to us that we saw people going to restaurants or going to Disney World, um, and yet we couldn't go and visit him in the hospital. So, you know, I think there... Um, the way that we've handled this this year, certainly there's there's been maybe some room for improvement. Um, and that was one that we felt like there, there could have been because there are a lot of people who, when they feel like they don't have hope and they don't feel like they have anyone supporting them, that could make a big difference. And, you know, my dad was also sick from COVID around the same time as my grandfather, but we did everything we could to keep him out of a hospital 
you know, luckily he didn't necessarily need it. My grandfather did need it. Um, but he said that made all the difference for him because he had everyone around him sort of rallying around him and helping him and seeing that helped him push through. Um, and so unfortunately, my grandfather did not have that. So I think, you know, we learned a lot of lessons from that. I think we learned a lot of lessons too about sort of the magnitude of this loss. And for me, I think for everyone, it's really hard to conceive what 500,000 dead, what that is, what sort of hold that in your mind and understand that it seems very overwhelming. Mm -hmm. And I, I think I wrote in the piece, you know, for me, I really only needed to think about one and the pain that we went through magnified over all of the, you know, potentially millions of lives that those 500,000 dead have touched mm -hmm. and who have been touched. And so I wrote a lot about our communal grief this year because it feels like um, a lot more people understand in some way this experience. And so we've all sort of communally gone through this great loss and how we come out of it, I think, hopefully, or at least I wrote about it, hopefully it, it means we come out a little bit more empathetic and a little bit more willing to um, help your neighbor think about um, the experiences other people go through a little bit differently, how hold a little bit more space in your heart for them. And that's, that's how I felt afterward. Um, covering coronavirus after his death was, was very different because uh, I understood it in a way that um, made it less of a statistic, made it less clinical and, and, and hopefully I think that makes us all better people, but unfortunately we had to go through all of this first. Well, Chabelli Carazana covers the economy for the 19th. Chabelli, thank you so much for your reporting and, and for uh, joining us again. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. Still to come, how the space shuttle program helped open the door for a new generation of female astronauts. We're back in a minute. This is Intersection. I'm Matthew Petty. After the final Apollo mission, the space race was over. In the 1970s, NASA began looking ahead to the Space Shuttle Program, a program with a greater focus on science. University of Central Florida history professor Amy Foster says that focus on science gave women a window to join NASA's astronaut corps. She spoke with WMFE's Brendan Byrne about the first female astronauts at NASA and about her book Integrating Women into the Astronaut Corps, Politics and Logistics at NASA. Foster begins the conversation by talking about NASA's pivot to a new focus as the shuttle program began. But by the 1970s, the Apollo program was over, the shuttle program was beginning, and the, the mission for NASA very much changed. The, the space race was over, um, and so NASA was kind of redefining what they would be, um, and it really would be about science. And, and in, in fact, that's actually consistent with what President Eisenhower had wanted for the space program. If you look at the, um, the National Air and Space Act that, that founds NASA, um, it's meant to be a scientific agency. And so the, NASA was kind of going back to, I would say its roots in defining what the shuttle program would be. And so because it was gonna be about science, NASA needed scientists and engineers mm -hmm. and physicians. So this was kind of the first opportunity to bring in a much larger group. It was the largest group to date um, with 35 people and 15 of those were pilots because they needed somebody still to fly the shuttle um, and then the rest were scientists engineers physicians 
Um, and so this is really kind of what opened the doors um, for women to enter the program. You no longer had to be a pilot. You know, women were still kind of struggling to get into flying career because it isn't until the 1970s that you have women who uh, become pilots in the military and particularly go to test pilot school. And that was still something that NASA was was prioritizing for its pilots. But women were getting degrees in the sciences and going to medical school. Um, and so that, you know, we had women now, a, a larger uh, percentage of women who qualified for the space program because they now had advanced degrees in science. So it's, it's as much about women having opportunities in what I call those pipeline careers that ultimately will feed the space shuttle astronaut corps. When we look at those first six women who were selected as part of group eight, they are all scientists or physicians. So we've got an astrophysicist, a biochemist, an electrical engineer, an, an ER physician, a surgeon, and a marine geologist. So, you know, it's very much science-based stuff. And these women all had either an MD or a PhD. So very mm -hmm. accomplished coming into the field. So it's as much about the technology changing that opens up opportunities, but also that redefinition of what NASA was was doing with its missions moving forward. So so the, the scientific direction of the space shuttle program gets the women in the door at this point, but when they're there, what are some of the early hurdles that they faced walking into this boys club? You know, the fact that there were 35 new people and there, it was also the first time that people of color were included in, in the astronaut selection course. So there were three African-American men and there was an Asian-American man. And so the look of that class was very different. And I think as a whole, classes tend to, to, to gel. Um, and so you can say the white guys in the group were supportive of, you know, the people who were in that group that were going to be uh, trendsetters and class worked very well together. But I think one of the biggest challenges that uh, those six women faced was that they're entering, like you said, a boys club. NASA, if you look at pictures of, of you know, mission control in the 1960s, it's very white, very male, very Protestant, in fact. Um, and, and so these are, are men who were comfortable working with other men, um, used to it, and not really sure what to do with women, how to behave. The women that had been around them were, the majority of them were secretaries. Um, and so now they have a core of women who are essentially at the same level, uh, certainly as are as well educated as the, the engineers that we see at NASA. So there, there were some bumps in the road. I think the the men were pretty uncomfortable with the whole idea of what what do we do with these women? We, we it, it just it kind of just made them very uncomfortable, and they didn't really know. And and certainly when we're dealing with spaceflight, and there's lots of elements that are involved in spaceflight to include just living conditions. Um, that made a lot of the, the male engineers very nervous when they had to ask questions of women about things like mucus, <laughs> when, you know, that the men had to deal with, particularly with designing the toilet. And there was, yeah, there was a lot of uncomfortable conversations, I think, for the male engineers to have to breach these topics with the women. Um, I, I would say as a whole, you know, when I, when I talked to those first women, they don't, they don't say they were discriminated against. Um, they can tell those funny stories about 
being around male engineers who really just were so uncomfortable in their skin having to ask some of these questions. Um, but I think, you know, they they certainly experienced some of that, you know, laughing behind their backs um, mm. and judgments based on the fact that they were women. Um, but these are all women who have come through, like I say, they've, they've come through PhD programs in the sciences. Um, so they already come in with a pretty thick skin. Um, right. And, and aren't as sensitive to kind of those jokes behind their back, but they do happen. As you mentioned, you have talked to a lot of these women, um, you know, in, in your research and uh, also writing your book. What did they make of the situation? Like in the moment, did they see themselves as these trailblazers for the, the women that would come, um, you know, next in line? Or did they just want to do their jobs? What what did they perceive their role in this new chapter? It's it's very much both. Um, you know, they were there to do a job. Um, it was a job they wanted to do. They were excited to do, um, and so they were willing to put up with a lot of you know that that backroom teasing and and those situations where you just want to roll your eyes uh, because they wanted to fly and they were professionals and that was their driving motivation. Um, but they certainly understood that they were doing something that no other women before them had done in the United States. Um, at this point, there had been one Soviet woman who flew in, in 1963, uh, but that was the only woman they had flown until 1983. Um, so it's, and so it's, there's not a lot of history there anyway of women flying in space. And so they understood that everything that they did um, was going to set a precedent um, that was important to truly understand. And they understood themselves as heroes um, for girls, um, you know, and young women who were, were coming up through comparable ranks, you know, as an example for really understanding the importance that their presence and their, their job meant. Um, when, when Sally Ride was selected for her first flight, which was the first flight of an American woman in space, um, she would actually sit down with the other five women and talk through some of the pre procedures that she was writing, uh, particularly for the remote manipulator arm. Uh, so she was going to be the one kind of working that arm from inside the flight deck. Um, and so you know, as she's kind of writing these policies, she would sit down with the other women and say, does this make sense to you? Does this sound like a good approach? Does this sound like a good procedure? So that the other woman could, could, you know, help construct those set of protocols because Sally understood as well as the other five women understood that if the next person to come along who happened to be Judy Resnick, if she came in and changed the protocols that Sally had written for the remote manipulator arm, there would be pushback. You know, mm -hmm. they, they understood that the response would be these women, they just can't, you know, they can't make a decision, they're flighty, you know, they're unpredictable. Um, and so they understood that everything that they did was going to be judged and evaluated in a way that the men weren't. And and that's it's a it's really quite a burden in a lot of ways. Um, to have to second guess or, or you know, backstep and, and evaluate every single thing they do because they know they're going to be judged for it. NASA, as we talked about, had from at least the top level, had a strong motivation to integrate these women into the astronaut corps. 
But as you write, they still faced political, technological, and social challenges. I mean, why was this such a difficult thing to do on the ground? Even though the 1970s, we see the rise of the second women's movement, you know, that there's the reason we have the second women's movement is because there's still such animosity towards women in the workplace, in the public sphere, um, you know, for a very long time, and particularly after World War II, as we are returning to, you know, a, a sense of normalcy um, with the whole idea of the nuclear family, the father goes out, he's the breadwinner for the family, the mother stays home, you know, raises the kids, keeps the home, uh, you know, that's, that became the social uh, ideal in the United States. And so, you know, when women start the second women's movement for more women's rights, it is because, um, you know, those opportunities hadn't been created. They, they weren't coming readily. Um, and, you know, when I, when I teach about the women's movement, and I really kind of say, you know, this comes directly out of the civil rights movement because there were women active in the civil rights movement. And, just the way they were treated as part of those organizations, uh, it, it kind of, they came to their own sense of realization. Why are we fighting for black voting rights when we're being discriminated against in the whole process? Um, and so it, it, while they still believed in civil rights, they also understood that as a woman, they also have rights to fight for. Um, and so it's, you know, it it's coming out of that, era that you have women now doing something that was considered for a very long time, not just a man's job, but, but an American hero's job. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, we look at those, the Mercury astronauts, Americans don't much think about the Gemini program that was right in the middle between Mercury and, and Apollo, but kind of that, the Mercury to Apollo astronauts, they were, um, you know, as Tom Wolf described in the right stuff, single combat warriors. They were they were the cold warriors fighting against the Soviet Union, and they were about American prestige. And mm -hmm. so for a woman to come in and do that, there, there were a lot of people, both men and women, who, who were arguing it's not the place for women. Mm -hmm. So again, it's kind of that public sphere, private sphere kind of conversation again. Um, you know, like I say, by the 1970s, women are getting more opportunities in higher ed. Um, and, and getting advanced degrees. And so those doors are opening, but they, they do come with some real pushback. Um, Shannon Lucid was, was one of the first, one of the six women selected in 1978 and her uh, PhD was in biochemistry. But even when she was, she was looking to go to graduate school still as an undergraduate, um, you know, she had a professor who she really admired um, and asked him about going to grad school. And he basically said, why? Because you're just going to get married and have kids. And it's still kind of in that mindset that these women are achieving new great things. And so it's, it, it, was, it wasn't an easy time to do those things. Doors were opening, but it's still all couched in kind of that cultural ideal of post-World War II. Let's, let's fast forward to today and looking at, you know, the current astronaut corps, there are more than just six astronauts, six women astronauts in there now. You know, how is NASA doing when it comes to gender diversity? I, they're doing pretty well. Um, the last two classes of astronauts have basically represented parity. Um, 
Two classes ago, there were eight astronauts selected, four men, four women. In this last class, um, so if you look at kind of the American side, it's 11, but they included two uh, Canadian astronauts in that group. Mm-hmm. Um, so of the 13, there are seven men and six women. For mm-hmm. just the American side, it's six men, five women. So, you know, we're dealing with an odd number. So somebody has to unbalance the scale, I would say. But, you know, it still is very much representing parity. Um, I think we have more women coming into the astronaut corps as pilots because new opportunities have happened in the military. Right. Um, you know, and and just flying generally. I mean, women get the training in the military and then when they leave the military, they they go to commercial aviation. But, you know, we we have women who are are succeeding in those fields and more women getting advanced degrees in the sciences and engineering and going to medical school. And so all of those, um, you know, we, we have a much larger body of women, successful women to choose from. Uh, and so NASA really, because NASA has so many great people to select from, it's much easier to get closer to parity. And, but I think it's something that they're, they're very aware of and try to, to handle well. And I think when you, like I say, when you look at those last two classes, they do really seem to be doing a good job at trying to diversify, you know, the astronaut classes, both in terms of, of color as, as well as, as sex. I am impressed with how far they've come. And, and knowing Sally Ride and, and those other five women astronauts from the first class, I mean, what do you think they would think of having that parody in, in the past two classes do you think that they would be they would applaud it or or thought that this would have happened sooner i mean what do you think that they would say to today's class you know i think there there is a lot of pride um i haven't really talked to them about it um but you know they they i mean they they understood they were opening doors um and so to not see a backslide i think is something they would consider a great success and and backslides do happen. I mean, when we look at at women in the military in particular, when uh, in 1993, when um, more combat positions opened up to women and then we started to see women as fighter pilots, uh, you know, you see you see kind of numbers rise. The number of women who are, are going into fighter pilot careers in the military rises until about 1995 and then it plateaus and starts dropping off. And it it's, it had a lot to do with the culture. Um, you know, the women, I, I remember um, interviewing one naval aviator and she said she had two choices when it came to kind of her flight crew. Um, she could either bake cookies or be one of the guys. There was no middle ground. And I think that kind of that attitude, that culture, um, it, it, it wears you down. Um, to a point that it's like there, there are better things for me to do. I don't, I don't need to stay in this environment. So the fact that we haven't seen that backslide at NASA, that there's, it's just been improvement and improvement and improvement, I see as a very good thing, and um, I think it's something that women astronauts would be proud of. We've been speaking with Amy Foster, associate professor at the University of Central Florida's History Department and author of Integrating Women into the Astronaut Corps: Politics and Logistics at NASA. Amy Foster, thanks again for speaking with us. Thank you very much for having me. And you can find more of Brendan Burns' interviews and reporting about space exploration on Are We There Yet? It airs Tuesday nights at 6.30 on WMFE or wherever you get your podcasts. 
Support for Intersection comes from our listeners and from Advent Health. Production assistance for this week's show from Clarissa Moon and Brendan Byrne. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This program is made possible because of you. Our Spring Drive finish line is one week away. You can make a gift of support today at wmfe.org or by calling 1-800-785-2020. I'm Matthew Petty. Thanks for your support and thanks for listening.